Today's episode brings us a guest whose life story is a testament to the power of transformation and human spirit. Joining us is Jack Hager, author of Captured by Grace. His autobiography takes us through an extraordinary journey from his early years as an army brat, through the challenges of Vietnam, to the battle with addiction, and then to a profound spiritual awakening. Today, he stands not only as an ordained minister and an inspiring author, but also as a fighter in a very personal battle against myeloma cancer. His courage and faith in facing this challenge add yet another layer of depth to his incredible story. In this episode, we'll explore the many facets of Jack's journey, understanding how each chapter of his life has contributed to his unshakable faith and his mission to spread hope and grace. Jack, it's an honor to have you with us today. Do you go by Reverend? No. No. The only time I play that card is if, if somebody wants to visit it, me to visit somebody in jail or prison, I say, Reverend, no. I got the piece of paper on my wall, but it's just a piece of paper. Jack is preferable. Okay. Okay, so we'll do. Or His Holiness, whichever you prefer. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> okay, well, welcome to the Sensible Hippie Podcast, Jack. It's truly an honor to have you here with me today. It's, um, it's my privilege. Thank you. Thank you. And your book, Captured by Grace, is a profound testament of life, um, of extraordinary experiences and transformations that you went through. And from the very beginning of your journey, um, it was marked with challenges and changes and ultimately redemption. Um, so our readers would like to, to hear the roots of your story. So if you can kindly take us back to that beginning of your journey and share us your experience that shaped your early part of your life. Well, I grew up in a military family. Uh, my we were dysfunctional before it was trendy. We just didn't. We just thought we were screwed up. But uh, my parents were both functioning alcoholics. We went to Germany when I was nine months old. Came back to the states five years later. Moved quite a bit. Moved out on my own when I was fourteen. And uh, my, I don't blame any of this on my parents. They contributed. But the power of choice is a magnificent thing. And every everything that happens in my life is because of my choices. Your choices make up your character, and your character makes up your conduct, and all those things. Um, no religious or Christian background at all. My parents, to the best of my knowledge, never went to church. Uh, I certainly didn't. I always knew there had to be a something. Just like I couldn't believe that a long, long time ago, nothing got a nothing and made a something. Uh, I just couldn't fall for that. But I remember laying on the beach in Southern California with five or six other guys, two o'clock in the morning, looking up at the stars. And one of the guys said, you know what? I think the people from Mars planted us here. Okay, that's fine. But where'd the Martians come from? Well, they came from Pluto. Well, where'd Pluto come from? And so eventually I realized there had to be a creator. But if there was a creator, it made me the created. And if I was the created, I was accountable to the creator. And I didn't want to be accountable to anybody. So I just blew it off. 
graduated from high school in 1965. Uh, Vietnam was starting to get hot and heavy. I was given a couple of scholarships, and I said, I don't want to go to any more school, but I didn't want to go to Vietnam either. So I went down, talked to my recruiter, and he gave me all the tests, and he said, Mr. Hague, you're exactly what we're looking for, and if you enlist in the Army Security Agency for four fun-filled years, not only will you not go to Vietnam, you won't even go overseas. I fell for it, signed of the dotted line, went to basic training, advanced infantry training, intelligence training, then went to the Republic of South Korea for 25 months. I guess he wasn't real good at geography. From Korea, I went to Germany for two months, and from Germany, I went to Vietnam. And during this, well, I should I should point out that I started drinking when I was about thirteen, and my drug of choice in my high school years was Coors Jack Daniels and Johnny Walker Red. Marijuana was downtown LA. It wasn't over the hill in the middle class America, really. So I never smelled marijuana, never saw marijuana until I got in the service. And in Korea, I started smoking marijuana. Um, that led to experimenting with other drugs, but pretty much alcohol and marijuana were my drugs of choice. Vietnam was an experience. I'm not ashamed of my service in Vietnam. I'm not overly proud of it. Uh, I guess I, more to say, I'm not proud that we were there, the way we were there, the way we gave away Vietnam. I came back from Vietnam, was very disenchanted, didn't want to stay in the States, ended up going to Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands. Uh, they hired me. I saw an ad in the San Francisco paper, and they said, have you been recently discharged? Do you have a top-secret code word clearance? Come see us. So I came and saw them. They hired me almost immediately. They sent me to Quaj as a radar intercept operator. I couldn't even spell radar. I didn't know what. These are just headhunters hiring guys with security clearances. Stayed there for a few months. Um, got bored. Came back to Hawaii. Want me to keep going? <laughs> Any questions so far? Came back to Hawaii, met a young lady who was a stewardess. Uh, in addition to stewarding, she also smuggled drugs for some guys. She said they were looking for help. She introduced me to them. They sort of kind of hired me, moved to the West Coast, and for the next three and a half years was involved in a fairly big operation selling drugs, guns, and some other stuff. Uh, the inevitable happened. In December of 1973, I was finally arrested in San Angelo, Texas. Uh, they arrested me on warrants from California, Oregon, and the feds. Texas had no charges on me. They were just arresting me on a fugitive warrant. The same night they arrested me, they arrested maybe 20 of the other guys. Uh, it was it was a relatively big-time bust. They threw me in Tom Green County Jail. I stayed there for four or five months, was extradited to Oregon. In Oregon, we plea bargained, did some other stuff, ended up getting sentenced to 10 years. While I was doing the 10, California dropped the charges, the federales elected not to prosecute. So I got out of prison after four, went to Bible school, and have been in full-time ministry since. So obviously there's a little bit more to the story. Uh, in Texas, they found some drugs in the cell, which is not unusual. Uh, drugs are easier to get when you're locked up than they are in the street. They just cost more. 
but they punished us by taking the TV set away. We couldn't watch Sesame Street anymore. They took the dominoes away, the poker cards, the chess sets, the Monopoly game. They took everything out except the religious stuff. I guess the Supreme Court mandated they had to keep the religious stuff. So after a couple of days of having nothing to do, I went over to the pile of books and kicked through the books didn't want to read the Bible. I was a man. I did the crime. I could do the time. Didn't need any of this nonsense. Uh, at the bottom of the pile was a little paperback book with an American flag on it, and in the title was the word prison. So I said to myself, self, why don't you read this book, ignore the science fiction religious stuff, and see what this guy has to say about prison, because I'd never been in prison. I'd been in jail a few times, but I'd never been in prison. I knew it was a different world, so I picked up the book and began to read. This guy was a World War II guy, alcoholic, who got arrested, who was led to the Lord by a chaplain in in the jail, got out and started a big church in San Diego. He's dead now. Uh, but he kept telling his story, and in telling his story, he kept quoting verses from the Bible. So after a while, I figured, well, if this guy's using the Bible as his reference, probably the Bible is more important than his book. So I picked up a Bible and began to read. Uh, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I started Genesis and kept going. Somehow I got through Leviticus and Numbers and got to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And humanly speaking, my interest in Jesus began when I realized in reading the Gospels that he never had anything bad to say to the hookers. He never had anything bad to say to the thieves. The only people he blasted was the religious people. And I said, cool, I kind of like this guy, and read some more, read some more, and uh, after a while I said, cool book, and I threw it across the cell block and I said, I don't need this. But I couldn't get Jesus out of my head. And maybe another two or three days passed by, went over and picked up the book again. There was no repeat after me prayer in the book. There was no chaplain that was uh, in that jail cell. It was just a very lost sinner, that would be me, and a very loving God. I wish I would have written down exactly what I did. I didn't, but I, I trusted Christ. I believed Christ. 10,000 angels did not do a square dance in my cell. If they did, I didn't see them. I didn't break out in tears, didn't break out in a foreign language or an unknown language. I'm not, I just don't like people who put God in a box. All I know is from that day, January 30th, 1974, I remember the date because I was 26, uh, I never doubted Christ. I never doubted my salvation. I did wonder why he would die for me, why he would give a rip about me. Uh, but it's been quite a journey. And got out of prison a few years later uh, through a string of quote-unquote coincidences. Found out about a Bible school in Kansas City. My parole officer in L.A. switched my parole to Kansas City. Moved out there, went to a year-long Bible school, went into full-time ministry. And I'm amazed I get to do what I get to do, but that's the fast version. <laughs> wow that's pretty cool though so you were 13 when you were when you went on your own and 14 yeah 14 where did you go i stayed i was living in southern california my dad was doing an isolated tour in korea he came back from korea he was transferred to the presidio in san francisco excuse me and i was 14 madly in love all the other stuff. I said, I'm not going. They said, okay. 
Now what? And they said, we'll give you an allowance. We'll give you a little bit of money. They did not know that I was already stealing, making a little bit of money here and there. So I ended up getting an apartment and stayed there for two years, three years till I graduated. And that's the name of that story. And I, I never flashed the money, never flashed a weapon, uh, drove a car with an America Love It or Leave It sticker on it. Uh, and it was I had I had a pretty nice car, '57 Chevy. The thing I was driving, I can't even remember what it was, but it was beat to death station wagon, because I didn't want to bring attention to myself. I didn't. I don't think anybody in the high school knew what I was doing. There were a couple guys from L.A. that I had partnered with. They knew what I was doing. Um, but when I graduated from high school, I, I was in the top 10% of the class. And therefore, I got a scholarship to Stanford and a scholarship to UC. And again, I didn't want to go to school, so I went in the military instead. Wow. So were you already selling drugs at, in high school? No. I had not discovered marijuana till I was in Korea. Um, I was just sticking a gun in the clerk's face saying, give me the money. We'd drive down to L.A. maybe once a month and hit a liquor store or stop and rob or something and never had to pull the trigger, never had to, never got arrested for any of that stuff, got arrested for some Mickey Mouse stuff and spent a few nights in a jail here and a few nights in a the jail there. But it was just, and speaking of that, I wish they would have been more rigid with me I, instead of the slap you on the wrist and say if you ever do this again uh, I think you have to learn that actions have consequences and the justice system doesn't do a really good job of doing that until they get tired of you and people end up in prison that probably could have avoided it had they been taught that actions have consequences early on in life yeah I agree I think it's still the same today it just kind of sadly true. The the prison people, operating from good motives, end up giving you an excuse for your behavior. When I checked into Oregon State Prison, they gave me all the tests: the intelligence test, the ink blot test, square peg round hole, all that stuff. And at the end of it, they called me in front of the parole board and said, "Mr. Hager, the reason why you're a thief and a dealer, etc., is because." of the bad attitude you have to the United States because of the tour of duty in Vietnam. What have the idiots just done? They've allowed me to say the most obscene thing in this country. It's not my fault. It's not my fault I'm black. It's not my fault my parents got a divorce. It's not, And that stuff certainly contributes. But you still have the power of choice. Nobody forced me to take the first drink. Nobody forced me to do the first theft. It was a decision on my own. And here's the system that's trying to help me saying, well, we got to get you in a self-help group. We got to get you into this group and we'll come to terms with your bitterness toward America and you'll be a good boy. And I'm not totally against all that stuff, except for the fact they don't look you in the face and say, hey, idiot, you're here because you're the choices you made. Because I maintain that until and unless, not necessarily a religious thing or a Christian thing, but until and unless an inmate says, I'm sick of this, no matter how much money you throw at him, no how much education, until he decides or she decides, I don't want to do this anymore, nothing's going to change. And once they do that, if they shake off the it's not my fault stuff, then they have a pretty good chance of making it on the street. 
Yeah. That's just my opinion, but happens to be right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I'm intrigued. You were in Hawaii before. Uh, maybe for a month and a half. Okay. And when was that? In the 70s? This would have been, yeah, 1970 or maybe early 71 i can't remember wow but w when i quit quads uh i was supposed to be there for a year that was the contract when i quit they said we'll fly you back to the states and since hawaii was a state they said see ya okay <laughs> uh, and i have i have plenty of money because there was no nowhere to spend money really on quadrillion and it was good and then i met that girl and one thing led to the other um, from here the girl no she was from Southern California. I see. She just did a route from L.A. to Honolulu, I guess. I see. I see. And so you were living here in Honolulu? Yeah, just in a hotel. In a hotel? That's pretty funny. Long time ago. Okay. So, and while she was a stewardess, she was selling drugs or transporting drugs. Transporting, yeah. Wow. And she was my connect to the, and we didn't have a name. We weren't like the, you know, silver knives or something. <laughs> we, we were like the UN. There were black guys, one Vietnamese guy, <laughs> a few white guys. And it, it was run sort of kind of like a business. There was a boss and there were regional managers, if you will. And I got a straight job working for Greyhound. Uh, and they, I, I wanted to be a baggage boy, but I did my job so well they promoted me to be in a dispatcher, and then they wanted me to run a small bus station in Grants Pass, Oregon. So I was doing that uh, just to have a legal source of income, and they gave they said I could have two employees, and there wasn't enough work for me, much less two employees. But I made up a couple names, got a social security number, hired myself twice. Oh. So I was making three salaries. And Is that just, what you got in trouble for? No. Well, that was one of the one of the charges, but most of the charges were what Oregon called CAID, criminal activity and drugs, which is a broad brush thing. California got me on a couple of transportation things, and the feds had me interstate transportation of drugs. But again, while I was doing the Oregon time, they elected not to prosecute just because they're like anybody else. They got too many files on the desk. Wow. So they so. You said that it was kind of run like a business, the, the drugs. What was it, um, marijuana back then? Yeah. What uh, kinds of drugs? Primarily marijuana, uh, some weapons. And you know, back then, A, marijuana wasn't as potent as it is now. It was still obviously illegal. It was still the drug of choice for the flower children and all that stuff. Uh, and... Bottom line, you couldn't touch heroin if you wanted to. The black guys had the corner on that. And the, the, the more heavy-duty drugs, keeping in mind the crack hadn't been invented yet. There were things that cocaine was around, but it was outrageously expensive. I snorted a couple lines, and I said, this is stupid. I did LSD once, and I said, this is stupid. So I had a little bit of sense, but uh, wacky tobacco and booze was my... I was always high, always something, and making a lot of money. I was also bored to death. 
but I couldn't tell anybody that. I couldn't express that. And there'd be times I'd be laying in bed three or four o'clock in the morning thinking, is this all there is? Is this all there is to this thing called life? You know, make a lot of money, all the other stuff. And I didn't get an answer to that until the jail cell in Texas. What'd you do with all your money? Spent it. <laughs> and when I got arrested, they confiscated it okay. as illicitly begotten gains. So it went somewhere. I don't know where. Well, so you didn't buy any beautiful houses or nice cars or things like that? I did have a Porsche, but <laughs> okay. I just, yeah, it just... I'd wear clothes once and throw them away and buy new clothes. And, oh, my gosh. Uh, but it, it wasn't like a multimillionaire, but it was a lot of cash. And the wages of sin may be death eternally, but the wages of sin here and now can be pretty good mm -hmm. or pretty bad, depending on your perspective. What was your biggest challenges when you faced um, transitioning from life of crime and back you know to the life of faith what was your biggest challenge in prison it was a nothing burger in prison you hear a lot about christians being persecuted i never saw it uh one of the big rules in prison is you do your own time and the decision you have to make when you first go in are you going to do your own time or are you going to do somebody else's time meaning are you going to be the lone ranger or are you going to run with one of the gangs if you run with a gang you have protection you have access to stuff but if they get in trouble you get in trouble and in your file someplace some guard is putting that you're running with the Aryan Brotherhood or something. So I, again, I was 20, yeah, I was 26 when I got to prison and had done Vietnam, so I had a little bit of common sense. So I stayed alert, stayed alive, kept my back to the wall, didn't associate with a whole lot of people, was involved in chapel, Bible study, a writing club, and some other things. But uh, in prison, if you... Sooner or later, somebody's going to try and rape you. And if you put up a fight, they'll usually leave you alone. If you cave in, you become prison property. They sell you back and forth. And it's it's not... I've seen great big huge guys uh, cave and become somebody's baby. I've seen relatively small guys say, you're going to have to kill me first. And the perpetrator said, oh, that's cool, man. You know, it's just... It's just uh, they usually talk about heart. Do you have enough heart? Do you have enough heart to do this or to not do this? So doing time, for me, was not fun, but it wasn't horrible. And at that stage in my Christian life, it gave me the opportunity to read. I can't imagine doing time and not knowing how to read, but there are a lot of people in that boat. So I was reading everything I get my hands on, and... Uh, when I got out, I determined that I would stay out and got associated with the church. In fact, they hired me to be the minister of sanitation, otherwise known as the janitor. And then they wanted me to be the youth leader, which is really stupid on their part. But I'm sure they thought, hey, we get this ex-drug dealer youth guy and our youth group will get big. And it did. And I did that for a few months till I found out about the Bible school. But it was an adjustment. But again, I was only down a little less than four years. Uh, 
even then it was tough. But some of these guys get out after 10, 20 years, and it literally is a new world. And if they don't have someone in place to help them, it's really tough. Because usually one of the stipulations of parole is you don't hang out with somebody with a record. A lot of these guys, mom's got a record, dad's got a record, everybody they know has a record. And it's, and it's not just the black guys, it's everybody. And for a, a white male getting out, it's definitely easier. It shouldn't be, but it is. Uh, and again, I had people in place that got to know me when I was in prison, and they were there to help me when I hit the street. And that's the most important thing a guy or girl needs when they hit the street is some kind of a support, some kind of a accountability partner. You know, whether they're Christians or not Christians, because you, you really, we really do, we really do, we really do need each other. And without somebody to be in your life, it's real, you're real prone to go back to what you used to. And in my opinion, I'm, I'm one drink from the sewer. I don't even, I try not to take medicine with alcohol in it. I don't think I was ever addicted to marijuana, but I was addicted to alcohol. Uh, so I just stay away from it. And, even though it's been 40 plus years, I just, yeah, I stay away from it. That's good and it's very commendable. I know that's not easy. So. Well, it's, life isn't easy uh, for anybody. And the, the life of following Christ isn't easy. One of my standard lines is if your life is easy, I question the level of your faith. So far, they're not shooting Christians in this country, uh, like they are in North Korea, China, etc. I think it's coming. I think with the slide into relativism, to say you can get away with anything except saying something like Jesus is the only way to heaven. You could say he's a, a way to heaven, but if you say he's the only way, no, nah, because my truth is, one of the most ridiculous statements I hear is, my truth is, no, nah, there's only truth. You know, you can't pick your truth and make up your truth, but we are as a society, we are as a culture, and I think eventually, maybe within my lifetime, Christians will be overtly persecuted in this country, and that's going to separate the goats from the sheep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think it's coming, for sure. Um, what advice do you give someone who's currently struggling, struggling with issues similar to those that you faced in your past? I didn't catch the first part of that, I'm sorry. It's okay. What advice do you give someone who is currently struggling with issues similar to those you faced in your past? Okay, there's no one-size-fits-all. Uh, I, I do the prison stuff, and I meet guys in prison. I still work with teenagers, even though I'm older than dirt. And if, if somebody's struggling with something, and they're willing to talk, I'm, I'm certainly willing to talk to them. And... I have pretty good perception of whether they're running a game on me or playing a game. And there may be, there may be times that tough love, if you will, uh, hey jerk, I ain't got time to mess with you. If you want to get honest with me, get honest. If you don't, don't. And that may be the only time they've heard somebody like that. And if they've met me in a faith context, I go straight to my relationship with Christ. Not that coming to Jesus makes your life easier. 
or coming to Jesus immediately delivers you from drugs. For some people, it does. For some people, it's a constant struggle. Uh, again, there's. I don't like to put people in a box, but they they again they have to get to the want to. I really want to quit drinking. I want to quit smoking. I want to quit pimping. I want to quit whatever. How do I do it? And again, if I've met them in prison in a chapel, or I've met them in a church or at a youth event, I'll start with faith. If they're just somebody that somebody wants me to try and help, I'll talk to them a bit, give them a little bit of my story, and ask them if they want to hear more about my faith. Usually they say yes. And not everybody comes to faith. Not everybody, even those that claim to come to faith, a lot of them don't stick around. Uh, Drugs, any addiction is, it's an addiction, and it's very hard to stay away. So I just try to treat the individual as he or she is an individual, and my desire is to point them to Jesus, to point them to faith. But I also, I, I remember years ago, I was at work in western Kansas somewhere, and a high school asked me to come and be a be a chaperone at the Mothers Against Driving Drunk lock-in. And I said, sure. And some of my Christian friends heard about that and said, how can you go there? They don't tell them not to drink. They don't tell them, they just tell them not to drive and drink. And I said, A, although I wish it did, the Bible does not forbid drinking. The Bible forbids drunkenness, but it doesn't forbid drinking. Secondly, and even more importantly, I want these kids to be alive. So I'll do anything I can to help MAD, because once they're dead, they can't come to faith. And MAD and groups like that are helping kids. Not everybody listens, but uh, I'll go anywhere as long as people don't put limitations on what I can do or what I can say. Yeah, yeah, that's great, though. Do you have any particular, maybe memorable experiences from your speech or speaking when you talk to people in prison or churches or schools, camps? Oh, bunches of them. That's why I'm working on my second book. Oh. Uh, the first book was designed to do what the book I read in, in jail did. Spark somebody's interest. I'm trying to get one in every prison in the country. It's hard to do uh, just because they have crazy rules on uh, receiving things from the street. But we're working on it. Uh, I'll just start with this. A lot of times, because of my background, I get asked to speak a lot of different places, churches, service clubs. Uh, I used to do high school assemblies all the time. Um, and every now and then somebody will say, where's your favorite place to preach? Prison. They already know they're a mess. Where's your least favorite place to preach? Christian schools. Because they think they know everything. Uh, Every speaking opportunity is a privilege and a responsibility. But I think one of the most profound things that's happened in recent years is I was doing a family camp in New York, and there might have been, I don't know, 300, 350 people there, and about a third of them were pastors. And I got to get a drink. About a third of them were pastors. Uh, which makes it a challenging audience. Uh, and one of the nights I was just, I don't even remember what I was talking about, but I shared a story about my daughter who, when she was 21, 
announced that she was gay and is still practicing a gay lifestyle. And the way I read my Bible, that's a sin. Uh, it's not a worse sin than anything else. I don't blame homosexuals for thinking the church is homophobic. That's the way we come across too often. Uh, but anyway, so I mentioned that and mentioned some things. And I said, I, I wrapped it up by saying, my wife and I pray that God does whatever it takes to bring her back to faith. And then I said, maybe not wisely, but I said, that means that the camp director could come running through the back door saying, Jack, you got to get on a plane, go back to Kansas because your daughter's been in a horrible accident. She's in critical condition. And I said, you know what? That could, not is, but that could be God answering my prayer. It got quiet quick. And then I prayed and dismissed the audience. A couple pastors came up to me. How dare you say that? A loving God would never do that. And I said, okay whatever you say uh, I knew it wasn't any point arguing with them and then I spent probably two and a half hours talking to other pastors and other people that had the exact same situation and thought they were the only ones uh, Christians are notorious liars uh, I think there's two lies that Christians other people do too two lies that Christians say all the time like Oh, I'm doing great in response to how you're doing when inside they're dying because they just had a fight with their wife or something else is going on, but they don't want to be honest. Or I'll be praying for you, and then they forget. Um, I, I just, in fact, I saw a friend of mine last night who has been my friend for 45 years, and he's a lot younger than I am, but similar background. Uh, and in fact, God used me to be instrumental in his coming to faith a long time ago. And he was talking about his own alcoholism that came back. Uh, and he went to the Betty Ford Center, got his act together, and I asked him, do you still go to AA? And he said, I do. And we got to talking, and he says, I wish church could be like AA. And I said, there's an author named Philip Yancey, who was a phenomenal author. He wrote a book probably 20, 25 years ago, called Church, Who Needs It? And in that book, he says that most AA meetings are more like what church should be than most churches are. Hi, I'm Jack. I'm a sinner. And being honest and transparent, and instead of covering it up, instead of, I can't talk about that, or the judgmental people come out, they probably will. But who cares? It's, it's, if I'm going to pray for you, don't give me an unspoken prayer request. Tell me that you're struggling with porn. Tell me that you're struggling with whatever. And I can pray against that and pray with you. But I, and but Christians, like, like most people, hide stuff. And that's really sad. Because if we could be more transparent, but it's a pride thing. I don't want to admit that I have problems. I don't want to admit that I'm one of them. I don't want to admit that... I don't have it all together, but I sure don't have it all together. And uh, one of my other Jackisms is that any Christian is capable of any sin at any time. And once you think you're not, you're toast. I'm a preacher. I'll go. Sorry about that. No, no, no. You're a preacher. Go ahead. Well, just you know, I firmly believe that the Word of God does the work of God because that's how I was reached. 
it's not the only way to be reached, but I was just, and I wasn't looking for God at that point. I wasn't looking for a way out. I was just bored. And without my permission, God used his word to convict me of sin and judgment and righteousness. And there was no repeat after me prayer. There was nothing. I just trusted Christ. I just believed in Jesus. And all things passed away and everything became new and all kinds of other things happened that I didn't know about till I started growing in my faith and I'm still growing I hope because I don't want to be stagnant I don't want to be satisfied I don't want to be at ease in Zion in June I was diagnosed with uh, multiple myeloma and that certainly wasn't on my bucket list to get cancer but I I never said, why not me? I never said, why me? I said, why not me? Uh, and, you know, I'm getting chemo, and it's a, they classify it as a cancer that is not curable, but treatable. Uh, you know, it used to have like a five-year life expectancy. That has gone up quite a bit. And uh, because of a vet, I'm in the VA system, and the Kansas City VA and the Fort Leavenworth VA has been spectacular. You hear a lot of horror stories about the VA. These people have been way, way, way over the top. And I have absolute confidence in them, absolute trust in them. And uh, I don't think I could be in better hands. And ultimately, I'm in the hands of God anyway. And I'm not going to die ahead of time. And so that's... It's a faith. It's not a blind faith. It's a faith that's proven itself over and over. Yeah. What is your, um, I guess your, you said you have, what kind of cancer is it? Blood cancer? Myeloma? Is it's, it blood cancer? Yeah, it's cancer of the bone, but it's carried through the blood. And I'd never heard of it before. Actually, it was discovered, I get a physical every year, and in June of 22, there's a certain number, I can't remember, it's a acronym, there's a certain number for your kidneys, and it was fine. This June, it was very, very high, and it's not supposed to be. High enough, so they called me and said, get to a hospital now. Okay, went to the hospital, and in, re in diagnosing the, multiple, the kidney disease, that's how they found the multiple myeloma. So had the kidney disease not been there, the myeloma might have continued to develop because I had no symptoms of anything, uh, no pain, no nothing. And I certainly didn't know if there was anything wrong with my kidneys. And even now, the kidneys are probably more of a life-threatening thing than the cancer is. But the kidney number is slowly going in the right direction. And my doctor took me off the chemo, injected chemo, uh, for six weeks when I see her Monday because she thought the kidney medicine was throwing off the numbers for the multiple myeloma. So I still take a daily chemo pill, but Monday will evaluate and maybe go back to some other injected chemo. I saw the kidney doctor a month ago and she said, looks like you're doing good. Keep drinking water, drinking lots of water, and uh, I'll see you in February. So hopefully they're going to heal. Technically, it's stage four on the border between stage three, stage four. But And then later, I learned that kidney disease is a frequent offshoot of the myeloma stuff. Oh, wow. And what are you doing for your kidneys? Just some kind of medication? It's medication, but the main thing is hydrate. Uh, oh, really? Just drink, drink, drink. So more, 
too much information probably, but I almost feel naked without a bottle of water with me. And I've probably urinated more in the last three months than I have all my life. Because <laughs> uh, they say, just got to keep it flowing and keep it clean, etc. And there is a medication I'm taking uh, for that. And they're just not sure if it's not combating, but screwing up the numbers for the cancer thing. So when you say screwing up the numbers, is it as in it makes it look better or makes it look bad? Makes it look odd, I think. Looks odd, <laughs> but, okay. Yeah. In fact, I think that's the word my oncologist used. The numbers just are odd. So we're going to try this. Um, they may take another bone marrow thing or a PET scan or something, but I'm just... I'm just glad I'm in the VA, you know, the, Vietnam, the gift that keeps on giving, uh, because did Agent Orange cause it? I don't know. But if you had boots on the ground in Vietnam and develop any kind of cancer, pretty much the VA covers it. So thank you, taxpayer, for helping pay for my health care. But uh, part of life, we live in a broken world and broken bodies, and we get sick and we eventually die. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. My dad was in the Vietnam War as well. Oh, wow. So, he came home, though. He did. Yes, he came home. Any repercussions? Yeah, I think so, yes. PTSD? Oh, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Sure. Um, but he has other health issues, but not cancer. So he's very fortunate with that. Very, very fortunate. Um, but he lives in Thailand right now. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. It's did you marry, cheaper to live there. Mm-hmm. Did you marry a Thai? Thai lady. <laughs> yep. So you're half Thai? No. He, um, I'm half Japanese. So my mom is Japanese from Japan. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And after they got divorced, he met this lady later on in life. Okay. Um, yeah. So he, Did you grow up in Hawaii or Japan? Mm-hmm. No. Hawaii. Hawaii here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but he's from New Jersey. I guess kind of near issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, half a country away, but yeah, yeah. any place is better than Jersey, I think. Yeah, I think so. I, I have to agree on that. Yes, I, I've been to Jersey. I don't like Jersey. Definitely not a Hawaii, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so he, he um, yeah, he's been through a lot of stuff as well. And, um, but um, I think he's doing okay considering everything he's doing okay no cancer um but um he has other issues other health issues um he has stomach problems um so he can't really hold down food very well um and whether that's connected or not to agent orange i'm not sure but i wouldn't doubt it i wouldn't doubt it but um the military denies a lot of things and uh they're saying wherever he was, there was no Agent Orange. But he saw Agent Orange when he... Uh, he needs to apply again. He tried. He's really? Tried, but now he's... Yeah, he has. And he's, he's, in, he's in Thailand. So I don't know if there's anyone over there. Or I've not oh. how that works. It's, it, he would have to fly back to Hawaii here and, and do all that stuff again, um, which takes time. But, um, yeah. But he... Well, you have... You have my number. Give it to him, and if he ever wants to talk, I'm available. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, um, has your cancer diagnosis ever, like, affect your, I guess, out, other outward in life, I guess? 
your perspective of your because your theme of your book is uh, grace and redemption well they they don't want me to be in confined spaces uh, so my prison ministry is on hold okay uh, do you miss they, they really don't want me to be in large crowds and okay I say large is in the eye of the beholder so <laughs> I'm living I'm not dying uh, mm. and I'm not gonna you know where I've, I'm not a I'm not a fanatic on this, but I've elected not to get the COVID shot. Uh, and if the doctor were ever to say you got to get a COVID shot, I'd have to do some serious thinking about that. Uh, but there's there's really no effects that are. Pr preventing me from doing anything except the prison stuff so i correspond with a lot of prisoners most prisoners have access to email now okay. and some snail mail and a great correspondence courses do some other stuff i really miss being behind the walls most summers i speak at six seven weeks of youth camp or family camp last summer i had to cancel them all and i can't take any now because it's not fair to the host because i don't know if i'm going to get sicker or if they're going to change the treatment to every day so uh, life life is in pencil and not pen as far as you know trying to get a vacation in or trying to do something but it's a at this point it's a nuisance it's not a real negative thing except that some of my favorite food doesn't taste good anymore i forgot to mention that side effect yeah oh wow they say that's fairly common with chemo that oh um, yeah so some of my favorite food tastes gross <laughs> oh have you lost a lot of weight i have uh and there was a time i think i lost 15 pounds in eight days Oh I just didn't feel like eating it. That was when I was still getting the chemo injections. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even a conscious thing. Uh, mm -hmm. And I ended up fainting and going to the ER. And uh, I have a wife who's not afraid to kick me in the butt. So she says, keep drinking water, you idiot. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm doing that. And things are on an even keel now, I think. But they immediately did some heart... <laughs> tests etc in fact i asked the new when i meet a new nurse or doctor i asked him did you serve somewhere else before you came to the va and they usually say yeah and i say which one do you like more and they all say the va oh, yeah. how come well i get to serve veterans and that may be a party line but that's the first thing <laughs> and the second thing is but the the main reason i really like it here is that doctors don't have to wait for insurance if they want to test, they get the test. So they don't have to wait six months for insurance to approve it. So there's times I've been on the cancer floor, gone down to radiology, gone up to the labs without any delay, without any wait. And that's another good thing about the VA, at least the VA that I'm involved in. That's great. Yeah, that is good. So do they think that you got this cancer from agent orange or something from the military or they don't know you don't know they don't know uh, i was around orange everybody was around orange because it floated in the air it was never dumped on me like it might have been on your dad but uh, we'd be busting jungle i was a track commander in a track vehicle and stuff would be falling out of the trees sometimes a snake that was worse but <laughs> i don't like snakes at all but they they don't know there's no you know it's 
doesn't appear to be hereditary. I, I just think they don't know. Do you remember Tom Brokaw? Mm hmm I do. Okay. He's had multiple... He's had myeloma for maybe 15 years. What? Oh, so you can live... And he started out with broken bones. He, he had started out with real bad uh, reactions to the chemo. In fact, he... He was taking the same chemo pill that I'm taking back then, and back then it was $500 a pop. Now it's $1,400 a pop. That's a whole different subject, Big Pharma, but uh, it's, you know, again, the taxpayer's paying for it for me, and maybe the military, maybe the VA has some kind of deal going with them, but how does the average person pay for that? I don't know. That's, anyway... uh, and so what caused it? Who knows? Mm, I see. So this pill that you have to take, is it once a day for a couple of weeks? Yeah, it's three weeks on, one week off. Wow. Three weeks of taking the pill, then one week off, and then wash and repeat. Wow. And you. So far, the shots have been twice a week. Wow. Until she put the hold on them, but... Well, so we'll see what happens Monday. Yeah, I'll be praying for you for sure. I appreciate it as well. Yeah, I know. I think I think I read you said you have a lot of people praying for you, right? Four hundred people. Yeah, there's a uh, an app called Prayervine or a program called Prayervine, and I live on missionary support, so I've got people that invest in my work monthly. That's my only source of income, and meet a lot of people. And I just ask them, in probably late June or early July, I just ask them if they wanted to join this prayer thing. And they did. And so, yeah, I don't pretend to know how prayer works. Uh, well, if you only had one more person praying for you, yeah, I don't think it works like that. But the more the merrier and all that stuff. And I'm, uh, I'm fully confident God is capable of instantly healing me. But... The reason they call them miracles is they don't happen very often. And uh, if he wants to instantly heal me, that's fine. If he wants to heal me through medication, that's fine. If this is what I'm going to die of someday, that's fine. My times are in his hands, is what the scripture says. I'm immortal till it's time to go home. So, you know, I don't want to be a whiner. I don't want to be a thumbsucker. Uh, another jackism. God can turn God can turn water into wine, but He can't turn whining into anything. <laughs> That's true. So, besides dry mouth and and not being able to taste the food, anything else that you've been fatigue experiencing? Um, Afternoon naps have become a common thing. Okay. You know, lay down for an hour or so, and uh, and just physical fatigue. And I love to hike, love to walk. It's hard. To, I can't keep up with my wife. She has to slow down for me. Um, and, and again, some of this stuff is just because of the cancer, or is because I'm older than dirt. I don't know. You know, but you're not that uh, old. <laughs> you know, it all comes down to attitude, I guess. Absolutely. You know, I've got cancer. I'm going to die. I've got cancer, but cancer doesn't have me. I'm going to fight. That's right. And That's right. attitude determines actions. Determines accomplishments. Yeah, you got a great attitude. I can tell you that, and you and you're all there in your brain, unlike uh, you know. Well, you better ask my wife about that. <laughs> no, but I think you do. 
I definitely think you do. Um, looking back at your younger self, what would you, what would you, what kind of advice would you give your younger self? Like my teen self? Mm. Think. <laughs> think. I think it was Henry Ford says, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is why so few people engage in it. Don't be a follower. Uh, obviously, I would challenge them to read the Bible. Uh, I'd also, what you will be, you are now becoming. Uh, take life serious, but not too serious. I can't remember the guy. There was a, I think he was a Navy officer who delivered a speech a few years ago about make your bed. You familiar with that? Mm -mm. It's, his point was, he was giving a commencement speech at Harvard. Well, it couldn't be Harvard. Some, some well-known college. And he says, be a person of discipline. Get up in the morning and make your bed. Takes five minutes, never fail that, and talks about discipline and, and, uh, saying no and saying yes. It's fantastic speech. I wish I could remember his name. It was turned into a book. Uh, but I think just, you know, someday when I'm older, I will, whatever comes after the I will, uh, uh, what you will be, you are now becoming. And unless there's a miraculous intervention, like in my case, more than likely, if you're a liar now, you're going to be a liar when you're 50. Mm -hmm. If you shave the edges now, you're going to be doing that. So take life serious, but not too seriously. And don't be a follower. Uh, trust but verify. You know, we live in a crazy world where there's all kinds of agendas. And I don't, frankly, I don't know how they make it. How in the last 20 or 30 years, with the family breakup, with the drugs, with the sexual identity things, there's so many strikes against them that uh, I know they can. And thankfully, I've, like, like this guy I met last night, you know, I, I interacted in his life in 1980, maybe, and he's still walking with the Lord. So that's an encouragement. I got a whole lot of others, the other side, if you will. Had a whole lot that I just don't know. I don't know what happened to him, but uh, yeah, I think obviously again come to faith in Christ. That's my main goal. But beyond that, just recognize you are special. You are irreplaceable. You're the only you you got, and you have the power of choice. Don't blame other people. Take responsibility. Uh, personal responsibility is so lacking. That's again, like I referred to earlier, I think the biggest obscenity in the nation is, it's not my fault, it's not my fault, and too often well-meaning parents, well-meaning educators, well-meaning law enforcement encourage that. We are running with the wrong crowd. Yeah, did they make me, <laughs> they influenced it, but I, I make the choice. Because once you realize that, you understand you can choose to get out of that. If it's an addiction, it's going to be tougher. If it's just being stupid, you can get out of that real quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good advice. Good advice. So you have a hopefully another book coming out soon. Well, I don't know about the soon, but we're working on it. <laughs> that would be great. I'm looking forward to that. I really am. 
I'll let you know. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time, and I appreciate you opening your life like this up. You know, your your cancer, your life, everything. I appreciate that. If it helps one person, it's well worth it. If it gives somebody some curiosity, that's well worth it. Uh, and again, the honesty thing. Probably the biggest criticism, maybe the only criticism I've gotten in 40-plus years of ministry is, Jack, you're too transparent. <laughs> what? You don't have to go into sordid details. You don't have to spill your dirty laundry, but I don't think you can be too transparent. Yeah. Something but that makes you vulnerable, and people are afraid. Yeah, yeah. we lack a, a lot today. They care more about what other people think than what they think. Mm -hmm. That is true. Unfortunately, it really is. I hope, uh, I hope your cancer treatment goes well, and Monday is good news for you. And thank you. That, I appreciate yeah. it. It's been fun talking to you. It was fun talking to you, and I hope this is not going to be it. I hope we keep in touch. I would love that. I would love that, too. I appreciate that. In fact, get me a speaking engagement there, and I'll fly over. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> that would be great. Fly back here to Hawaii. It's changed a lot since the 70s. So have I. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't well, go I, won't, I won't go near Hotel Street, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> that's changed now, and it's not as... Mm, it's more like all homeless and druggies there now. Oh, really? You wouldn't yeah. even want to go there. The prostitutes are not even there. <clears throat> now they're all in Waikiki. <sighs> yeah. I know. It's changed a lot, unfortunately. We're good and bad, but yeah. yeah. But it's still Hawaii. It's still Hawaii. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. It, it is. The beautiful water. You can't replace that. It's... You can't look at that and say there isn't a creator. You know? It's so beautiful. So, and I'm sure you said you were in Guam, too, or not Guam. Where was it? Um, yeah, I was in, I was in Kwajalein, out in the Marshall Islands, for a few months. And See? coincidentally, I was in Guam. One of, one, of the, one of the teenagers I worked with became a Air Force chaplain. Oh. And he was stationed at Malstrom Air Force Base, where all the missiles are. And he said, Jack, will you come up here and do week meetings? Sure. <laughs> then he got stationed in Guam, and he said, Jack, will you come here and do a week of meetings? Duh. <laughs> so, again, the American taxpayer, he got to spend a week in Guam. Then he went to uh, uh, their training their training area in Texas, Lackland, Lackland Air Force Base. I got to go down there, and that's one of my... One of my speaking engagements that I feel really privileged to do, I got to speak to every airman going through basic training there. It was COVID years, so they had to break it up into four sessions. And it was just a, an honor and a privilege to do that. Wow. And I forgot to ask you, what branch were you in? Army. Army. My dad, too. Yes, Army. No, my unit in Vietnam was the 11th Armored Cavalry. Oh, wow. I'll have to ask my dad which one he's in. I forget. Unfortunately, I don't remember off the top of my head. He remembers, of course. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't talk much about the Vietnam days. That's usually... If you get around somebody, and I assume this is true of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, if you get around somebody who talks a lot 
watch their nose, it's probably growing. <laughs> Amongst ourselves, we might talk about it, but not to somebody that, not to somebody who hasn't been there. Same thing with prison. You know, I'm not going to go into any details about prison except with another ex-con. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't understand, so yeah, I get it. Wouldn't yeah, and couldn't. Mm-hmm. Unless you've been there, done that, yeah. Yeah, I've heard my dad talk to other uh, Vietnam veterans, and the lingo changes when you guys talk. <laughs> sure does. Yeah, yeah it does. He, he, the the little the little words kind of changes, and how he talks changes. It's a, I guess it's a military thing or a Vietnam thing or something. But yeah. And you kind of, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know if this is Dad's case or if he's, but you have to be careful that you don't get talking about it so much that your head goes back there. Mm -hmm. Part of my head is always going to be there. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, like I can watch war movies and it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. I, I have some brothers that they don't, they can't, they won't, mm -hmm. uh, and that's cool. Everybody's an individual. Everybody makes has to make their own decisions and. I'm not going to belittle them because they can't watch We Were Soldiers, which is my favorite movie. But uh. Yeah, my dad likes military movies, too. He, he doesn't have a problem with that. No. But he doesn't go into stories about it. He said, it's not for me. And he said, maybe someday I'll tell you, but just no. He, to he told me a couple of things, you know, but um, but not, not certain things he won't tell me. He said, yeah. not for my ears. And and I don't push it. It's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just let it be. Oh, I instantly think of the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I remember when he said he got out of um, Vietnam, and he said the same thing. He was a little disappointed, um, ashamed, a little disappointed how things went and how how they were treated, right? How all you guys were treated. And he said things were different. When he got out of Vietnam, when he got home from Vietnam, things were different. All the guys had long hair. He said it was so different. Yeah, the, the welcome home was not very nice. No. So I'm, I'm grateful that the Middle East wars, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to know whether we should have done that or not done that. Mm -hmm. But the people that were against the war weren't against the warriors. And uh, I appreciate that very much because it was ugly coming back to the States until I got out of my uniform. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he said, too. Yeah. Sad. But, um, well, thank you again, Jack. I'm going to You're very welcome. Respect your time. Thank you. And that brings us to an end of another episode of the Sensible Hippie Podcast. I want to extend my deepest gratitude to Jack Hager for joining us and sharing his incredible journey. Jack, your story of resilience and transformation and faith is a powerful reminder of the human spirit and its capacity to overcome adversity and find redemption. Thank you. And to my listeners, I hope today's conversation has opened new doors of understanding and curiosity. And don't forget to check out Jack's book, Captured by Grace for a deeper dive into his extraordinary life story. 
And for those who wish to discuss these topics further with Jack, he has kindly made himself available for a chat. So you can find Jack Hager's contact information details in the show notes below. So feel free to reach out to him. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star rating and don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and share it with others who might find value in these discussions. Your support is what keeps this podcast thriving. So let's continue to explore truths, challenge norms, and think outside the box. Until the next time, keep embracing the journey and stay sensible. Bye.